Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Today we are talking about the first week of session. It's it's uh, we're for, into the first week of a legislative session. It's the twenty first of January, and uh, my voice is a little scratchy because I went out last night. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm happily covering it from my uh, office in Anchorage. So it's been a wonderful experience for me so far. Yeah, what are you seeing in the first week of session, Matt? You're are you diving right in and attending a bunch of meetings? Uh, how have you been engaging so far? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is a pretty quick start of the legislative session. It seems like there's a lot of issues that will be um, taken up and, and, you know, plenty to write about, tweet about, uh, Mastodon about, and <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, podcast thank, about. Hey, thank you for coming over and visiting <laughs> yeah. us, by the way. So, yeah, there's a ton of stuff going on. Um, but the big thing, right, you know, so we got, you know, there's sort of previews of edu- uh, energy issues, of um, tax and spending issues, the budget's always out there. But really the big thing in this first week, right, is education funding yeah, uh, and education policy and the legislative process that is kind of being, is uh, is sort of unusual uh, for this early in the legislative session. I've been calling it a speed run with education. It feels like we're in a big yeah. hurry to get this done early and just put it to bed um, without any I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, minimal discussion. Yeah, but I don't know. I like how realistic is that? I guess from a, I mean, you know, you know the ins and outs of the legislature. Is this they tacked a bunch of stuff onto this kind of Christmas tree omnibus education bill, and they have it in the House Rules Committee, which is really unusual, right? Can you, um, yeah. And and so so, the, so House Rules Saturday yesterday was Saturday, and House Rules Committee had like a what eight hour meeting or something to mm-hmm. to talk about this bill. Great way to spend the Saturday, yeah. Yeah, and it was it was um it was wild how many people came out on on very little very short notice to testify. It was a, it was an odd shaped bill because there were some kind of good things or desirable things in it, but most people felt like it didn't go so far. So there were a lot of people testifying that they were opposed to the bill in the current form, but thank you for putting in some money for the BSA, but it should be more money or like, you know, and so it, it was kind of a, it felt like a little bit of a mixed, mixed, it wasn't, the testimony wasn't so much mixed. It was pretty overwhelming that this is not enough, but it was, it was hard for people to say I'm opposed to this bill because they had to put a lot of caveats in like, it's going in the right direction, but, give, but yeah. we need more. I mean, I think that the, so the important backstory on this, right, is that like education funding has become a really big issue in the last two years, um, really because we have this sort of unique, not unique, but sort of this long running problem that is sort of finally becoming, you know, clearly apparent, which is, you know, the in Alaska, we haven't, um, you know, there's not been a big uh, increase to the baseline education funding through the base student allocation called the BSA. Uh, it's like this formula in state law that determines how much money schools get. And, and and it's a formula that does not bake in inflation. Right. Yeah. Pretty important. Yeah. So there's been a big call to increase the funding, um, really because so the, the baseline is there. Um, we have a lot of like one time pandemic money that all ran out. So districts are all of a sudden like huge um, ish, you know, shortfalls, really because like, you know, as they w- most would tell you that 
you know, the cost, you know, buying power of the BSA is at its lowest in, in history is what some people will say yeah, about and, it. And um, it's been flat funded. You, you said for this has been a problem for the last two years, but that's because the COVID money kind of patched over some of the holes yes. that were there. It's been flat funded now for something like eight, seven or eight years, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. And so um, last year, there was a big push for kind of a clean increase to the base student allocation. There were kind of fights about what level it was, but they reached sort of a kind of a workable compromise of, I think it's $680, which is about $174 million a year. But that, wasn't, the numbers. It, but that wasn't an increase to the base student allocation. That was just a flat funding one time. Mm-hmm. Like, here's a little kick, one time, kicker. Yep. Yeah. And um, part of it got vetoed. So... Uh, there was an attempt to do the veto override on, um, that like went back and forth. They ended up actually holding it on Thursday night, which was an interesting thing. So, well, the first, the Alaska Constitution says they shall meet to take up vetoes. They decided to kind of late in the process that shall meet means you shall meet. Um, so they met. They didn't have any debate over it, and then they voted it down, which wasn't unexpected given that you need a three-quarter majority of both of the entire legislature to do but that. it was it was interesting because they put everyone on record they had the vote you know like that they that they actually yeah. made an effort i think was a i think was a good thing because they it's you know they stand up to dunlavy a little bit and they and they address it or or didn't well no i think by having the i, mean, I, think, I think having the vote I... is is one step in the right direction because a lot of yeah. a lot of times they would just let him skate on stuff like the vetoes that he made right. in 2019 he 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 cut a bunch of stuff and they they had to pass a whole new bill bill they didn't even have a veto override vote what was interesting about it though is that we did see several people who did support the money last year not support it this year yeah and so there's a lot of kind of talk about you know sort of the balance between education funding and your allegiance to the governor and that sort of push-pull yeah. there. Well, and, and like political hair-splitting, where, yeah. where they're like, if we give them money now, what will they spend it on? It's halfway through the year. How will they figure out where, you know, it's just a lot of like kind of mealy, goofy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and so what the right now, at this moment, sort of the, the House Republicans preferred approach to education funding, right, is this omnibus education bill. And uh, it started out as a Senate bill that dealt with internet connectivity in rural school districts, basically seeking to help help provide money to boost their connectivity speeds. Um, it picked up some other things like pupil transportation, which has helped, you know, cost money for busing, which has also not been changed. It picked up a BSA increase that was pretty good. Um, and then it was kind of like headed for the floor and the at the sort of last minute, the House Republican leadership, which is very um, governor aligned, I would say, intercepted it and kind of put the kibosh on it and shut that down. And so we're now at this point, started in the next session, this bill is still so, there. So, so last session, they kind of put it on ice and they sort of cryogenically froze it for this session and yeah. then immediately thawed it out and now we're we're running with the with this thing right i mean it's like a frankenstein's monster yeah. of education policy now so i the, i think um so it i think the actually the adn's headline is was i thought pretty accurate which is basically uh omni, you know house republicans uh, unveil omnibus uh education package packed with republican priorities which right. is what it is, basically, what they've done is they've uh, ratcheted down the BSA increase. So it's actually, it's a BSA increase, which is, you know, still a permanent increased education. So that's, there's a plus to that side. 
but it's actually smaller than the one-time money that even that it's less money than we got last year after the governor's veto so oh, governor's even veto after the veto to, yeah so the governor's veto brought it down to 87 million dollars this is about 75 77 million dollars a year but there's a lot of money in this bill that they can point to but it's going to really specific uh, specific niche things and so um, you know, you, if you're a school district, you probably want a lot of latitude to be able to like do, the, you know, fund the programs and the things that you need. Like if you need a janitor, you want to be able to hire a janitor. And if you get money that's earmarked for a specific pers- purpose, that, then so I think one of the struggles that I'm seeing with this bill is that like different school districts have different needs and they're sort of giving them some very reined in, um, you know, here's some money, but you can only use it for purpose X, Y, Z. I mean, this, like, so I've been covering the legislature for, like, a while now. But this is, like, true. this really truly to me is, like, a return to form for the Republican approach to education in Alaska, which is um, a smaller than uh, needed increase to the base student allocation that gets tied into a bunch of, like, really prescriptive Republican policies. So... What we get here is there's also like $23 million additional for homeschool students. Mm-hmm. That's been a long-standing priority. Uh, there's $58 million in there for teacher bonuses. But basically, it's this proposal to pay teachers between like $5,000 and $15,000 for completing the school year. Kind of just like based on a list of different communities. Just so like rural communities typically get more. Uh, Anchorage, you'd get $5,000, for example. It raises like a ton of issues. Like, there's a lot of legal issues that have been brought up about it. Basically, there's equal protection clauses. You know, there's sort of a the there's sort of disparate treatment of people under it. Um, I don't know about issues. that one. Like, I feel like some of these legal threats are like are, are I mean, I think puffery. I think, like the 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 idea that you can't pay someone a bonus like seems a little odd to me because I was you know like a couple years ago during the Fourth of July parade, the state had a truck drive through the parade that just said ten thousand dollar hiring bonus for Alaska well, State State troopers i believe those are usually worked through with the unions though okay um but but the thing here i think is that um the big complaint about it really isn't so much those legal issues which yeah i think i think you're right like is someone gonna sue over it blah blah blah. but the really the key issue from like a policy standpoint is that a it doesn't require the teachers to like actually stick around right so you just complete your year you get your money you could leave which is what people have been doing currently right maybe you just you're helping them move out of the community but the second thing and the more important thing is that it really it only affects teachers and this is like a part of this kind of republican talking point that's like we need to get money into the classrooms right which just sounds good right sounds like a great policy but this thing here it doesn't do any of the extra support stuff which is um you know the paraprofessionals which is like reading tutors special um, education aides there's a whole bunch of people you know the counselors um everybody else outside of the classroom who might not be a teacher but uh, you know in some way play a really important role in helping schools run right and if you talk to a lot of teachers these are incredibly important positions that play a huge role in in their success and also their like ability to like stay on the job just because of like handling burnout i have a couple teacher friends who you know they talk about how important that is and and how the you know lack of support because it's the thing too is that you know when schools are facing cuts those are like some of the reading tutors those sort of things are like the very first thing to be cut it's also um, a classic like union busting tactic to give one group a, a, 
a bonus and not the other because it splits them because then now like if you give the teachers a bunch of money then you don't have the teachers showing up to testify quite as much and if you you know you split the groups and create kind of a haves and have nots then then you have different people that want different things and so yeah. instead of instead of being united and all wanting to be paid a you know a fair wage for their work then you've got kind of like a group of haves and haves nots and so it's 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 from a strategic standpoint i can also see what they're doing there it's like a, it's an intentional division that they're that they're creating well remember this dunleavy administration i think the alaska supreme court the word was they found quote abundant evidence of anti-union animus uh in a in a um uh, when yeah. the governor was trying to unilaterally change how union dues were being collected. Well, and um, that was just decided this last week, too, right? The, the ASEA, the Alaska State Employees Association um, case, got declined by the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Yeah. Supreme Court, the, right. On this, this is the Dunleavy's weird direct appeal stuff. But so and what and that would have done in, is set up. It would have set, it's right now, like employees are opted into the state employee union and that would have made them. It, it would have forced them to be like, yes, I want to, I want to opt in. And, it, would... and and with a lot of language around how, like, by joining a union, you are waiving your First Amendment rights. You yeah. Know? And are you sure you want to do it? And so it was a lot of, like, kind of neg- – anyways. But I think the one of the important things, too, is that when the governor was talking about this program at his budget rollout, too, he was framing it in the sense of, like, oh, I really hope those unions would like to finally find out if their claims that teacher pay really matter – are true you know and this i think there's like definitely like a level of like animosity toward teacher unions and teachers themselves that's sort of contained in a lot of this yeah um so that's that's really interesting to me too and we've seen that in the legislature when last year when teachers were coming to testify that like was it mckay or um you have to remind me who it was but one of the legislators on the committee said you know like we're these aren't actual you know like they're, they're saying there's a lot of public testimony but this isn't the public that's coming to testify yeah. do you remember that one yeah that's mckay so mr chairman uh i do have several uh, comments that i'd like to make regarding amendment one. First of all we call it public testimony but a vast majority of the folks that testified last night for five hours were paid school district employees of some sort principals superintendents teachers people that make their living off of the bsa and the money we send them so it's not necessarily true that we were receiving public testimony Uh, i speak for the folks that sit home and work maybe they were working uh, unable to attend the public testimony meeting that we had. And I should probably point out that that meeting wasn't during like normal working hours. That, like he said, there were a bunch of teachers and school administrators who showed up to the meeting. So it wasn't like the the secret vast throngs of, of hardworking Alaskans couldn't have uh, also chimed in. But I think that reinforced the sort of silent majority narrative in his mind. Yeah, that's McKay. The guy who won by like less than 15 votes, I think, too. So yeah, so it is, it, it's weird to say weird, that like yeah. sc- public school teachers don't count if they're coming to testify about the state of education in Alaska. Yeah, but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, but we'll, let's run down the rest of the bill here. All right, go ahead. Um, so those are the two kind of main pots of additional money that if you hear them talking about how there's like this is actually two hundred million dollars for schools, a lot of it is wrapped up in these other. 
uh, kind of priorities. Um, there are a couple other elements of it um, that are worth pointing out here. There is um, a Deaf Students Bill of Rights in there. Um, this is by Representative Jamie Allard and kind of a, a constituent relations or constituent priority bill, which I think actually has like a lot of merit to it. Um, it's one of those things where it's like, gee, this is a great bill to like go through the committee process because it seems like there's a, like kind of around the edges, there's sort of questions about how it could work. And, you know, the committee process like makes these bills uh, better in right. a lot of ways. This seems like a weird one to roll into this omnibus bill because it seems like it could actually pass on its own and be better for it. Like it could yeah. go through the, the committee process and people could ask important questions about how it's set up and how it functions that will make it better rather than hold it back. Um, right. And, and it seems like there's a constituency for it. So, right. I don't, I, so it, they, it seems like they should peel that one out and put yeah, it on I mean, its own. Yeah. Thing. It's yeah. a weird, it's a weird one to be in there. Um, the real, so the final thing that I think we'll really highlight today is the charter school change. And this I think is oh, really yeah. to me is the most like fundamental educational policy change presented in this bill. So, kind of the basics of it are in Alaska public school systems are allowed to open public school charters which are these kind of like tailor-made special programs they can be have like a lottery and have applications and sort of have they can be run very differently than neighborhood schools yes yeah, so I was I was talking to one of my friends about charter schools and kind of came to the conclusion like I didn't really know much about them so I went and did a little bit of research and you know, essentially a lot of the writing on charter schools says that they're sort of an important part of the education ecosystem in that they uh, promote new styles of learning and teaching. It allows education essentially to grow and change and evolve outside of the ecosystem of the neighborhood school. I mean, I think that, I think that's like in a in an ideal world, right? That's sure. Like, that's sort of like my I, kind of 30,000 foot takeaway from this too is like why instead of so this the this legislation would expand um, the expand them basically and it would really take the the guardrails off of these programs um in a way uh, potentially right we don't kind of that's sort of the big thing is we don't really know exactly how it works but like i feel you know why aren't we why aren't we looking at okay if these charter schools are so great like why aren't we looking at implementing a lot of the teaching styles now right like right the big thing well and that's the thing is like charter schools are you should be able to bring that back into the neighborhood school like yeah. that should be you're like, oh, great, charter schools are doing well. How do we replicate yeah, that success in like, normal day-to-day yeah. -day schools? Yeah. And, like, I've, 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 you know, in my reporting, I've covered charter schools here and there. I've, you know, there's a couple that I even covered in Oregon that are, like, multi-age classrooms, you know. So you would have, you know, a middle, whole entire middle school classes all that goes together from 6 through 8. Um, mm -hmm. There are others that are more, like, outdoors-focused, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I think those are, like, you know, there's, they're fine, right? It's it's an interesting element. I think there's a lot of like there's a lot of talk about how much more successful they are than the neighborhood schools in a way that kind of like puts them above neighborhood schools. I feel like um, in in how you hear people talk about them, the the big caveat that a lot of the the Democrats and independents um, have been bringing up about this, I think actually Representative Calvin Trogi, he's um, the House minority leader independent in Anchorage did a really good job of, of outlining this but basically the the concern is that like part of the success of these programs is due to the their ability to be more selective about their students um, they can also do things like they don't have to support provide transportation they don't have to sometimes provide like like meals for students so the parents so a lot of the burden 
of is is kind of there's a lot of burden placed on the family to be able to go to these programs and the concern is that like not all families can meet that you know not all families can provide transportation not all families can provide meals um it's right there are you know public school systems where the meals that the kids are getting there might be the only meals they're having right like there's a huge yeah. level of like you know socioeconomic disparity in alaska right um well, there's so anyways, a lot of, there's a lot of that that the schools have to pick up, that they're kind yeah. of the last line of defense against, like, child poverty. Right. And, and you know, I have, I have friends that have worked in, you know, the, 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 the schools with high levels of uh, low-income families, and it's it's very tough. And and then when we – so the other thing, too, with, with the charter schools, right, is that the typically are smaller classrooms. You know, there might be a dozen ki- – you know, 15, 20 kids versus 30 kids. And so there's a lot of these, like, elements in here – that yes, they're doing better, but they are doing better precisely for the reason that people are calling for an increase of the BSA, right? We know we want to keep a, a reasonable class size, right? And so there's um, a lot of talk around that. I think those are interesting, though. They're almost not part of this conversation, though, because what is going on here, and, and sorry, it took, we took so long to get around to what this bill actually does, but what it does right now, so right now, um, charter schools, if you want to start a charter school, you go to your local school district and you know, there's a whole application process. And then the local charter, or the local school district will be the oversight of that. So if you um, follow the line for whatever reason, it would be up to the locally elected school board and, and, and the administration to like keep an eye on it, track the success and whether or not the program's working. Right. This program this law proposed change would take that power and say the state board of education which is um you know a uh, full of the governor's it's, appointees yeah it's all appointed by the governor yeah and and you know as we've seen is in under the dunleavy administration has been like an extension of dunleavy you know that it has been the vehicle by which he has instituted his trans sports legislature you know, regulations and stuff like that so it would make it so the State Board of Education could create charter schools and regulate those charter schools, but force local school districts to operate those charter schools. Yeah, the language remains that a local school board shall operate a charter school authorized under the, under this section. So they're yeah. setting up a thing where this State Board of Governor appointees hands off charter schools to local school boards to deal right. with, which is... You know, if, I feel like if the state is going to, if the state wants to administer charter schools, then maybe the state should be on the hook for operating them as well, um, because right now it makes sense to have the 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 local school board have some authority over them. Like if the if the local school board's tasked with with operating a charter school that is, you know, really out of alignment with what with their mission, or is just like doing things that are illegal or haywire, like they have really no tools there except for to go to the state and say, please, please, please revoke this charter. Right. And the really important context that I think hadn't really been brought up until this Saturday hearing on the bill, which again, I think is really highlights like how busted this process is. Right. So the backstory is that in Anchorage, there was a charter school program called Family Partnership that after many years of back and forth, Got shut down, and so. But to hear it from the the committee, the Republicans supporting this legislation, it's you know they had no recourse. How awful are they? Why do they hate districts? Or why do they hate charters? The reason they were shut down is because they were spending money, public money, 
on private and religious education, which is explicitly prohibited under the Alaska Constitution. Now, you know, you might think that this is, you know, a law and order administration that really, you know, would want to follow the Alaska Constitution. The problem is, is that, uh, okay, first of all, Dunleavy, his one priority, his one major priority, other than messing with sex ed legislation while he was a senator, was uh, a voucher system. Yeah. You know, a, a constitutional amendment to basically just say that, you know, we could give money to private and religious programs. Uh, the scope and shape of those programs he refused to talk about, which was interesting. You know, you refused to give any detail about how this program would operate in reality. Uh, his current attorney general, his third one. Man, what what happened to his other attorney generals? Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> uh, so Treg Taylor um, and Jody Taylor uh, were actually surprisingly pretty instrumental with uh, Anchorage Family Partnership, uh, specifically around this sort of like evolving um, legal thinking that once basically that once homeschool families get this money, they should be able to do with it whatever they want, including buying religious and private materials, which is just basically like, you know, completely haywires the Alaska Constitution's prohibition on it. Yeah. So the money transfers from the state to this organization and then it becomes the organization's money and they can spend it on whatever they want. Yeah. Right. So it's not actually the state buying the religious materials and yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so like, I I think what's interesting again is that, you know, when um, Dina Bishop, uh, commissioner of education, Dina Bishop, former superintendent of the Matt Sioux school district and the Anchorage school district, uh, one time supporter of the BSA increase, no longer was, you know, really didn't have a whole lot of details on how these programs would work. Right. And a lot of it's like, Oh, it will depend on the regulations. Right. And I think like, to me, it is exactly, how the Dunleavy approach is as Senator to vouchers. There's so much of let us change the rules and then we'll tell you what we're going to do with this rule change. And I think that's what's so important here, and especially with um, this family partnership thing in the background. We know what the Dunleavy administration and the Dunleavy appointed school board of education's like top priority is going to be is going to be reinstituting this program, this charter school, you know, specifically <laughs> with the intention of doing this. And uh, anyways, so I think that is a really important piece of context here. It's not, you know, there's a really, really interesting conversation about charter schools and the equity around them and how they work and, you know, are they really better? How do we bring those innovations into the cla- into neighborhood schools? That's really a whole different conversation that they're not having. That we can't have because, the, you know, this is this policy hasn't gone to any education committee, hasn't gone to... It's only sat in the House Ways and Means Committee, so it hasn't had no. We've had no discussion on it really about how it would work. So, what is the process here? Is the is this the Rules Committee the end of the road for this, and now it goes to the floor, and then boom, we're done, or like does this get referred to education, or how does this move through the legislature yeah. now that's already in committee and been changed so much? So that's I think that's what's really um, frustrating about this process, and what we heard a lot from the public testimony is that there are you know this is an incredibly unusual way for this process to work. So when the Senate passed this bill, it was really just like an internet connectivity bill for for rural school districts. And so you know if we go back to how you know passing a bill works, right? That's that's how the Senate passed. That's the Senate version. Now it's getting over to the House, and so it'll be the House version. And it's, that's got all these Christmas tree elements that really haven't gone through the process. But because we're injecting it at this really late stage in the process, the only option that the Senate's going to have when it comes back to them is to either 
vote yes on it to accept the changes that the House made, vote no to reject the Senate changes or the House changes, and then basically then sending it off to like a conference committee, which is this you know negotiated mostly closed door process. Uh, where the the two chambers hammer out the differences between the legislation. Yeah. The problem is is that you can only really do one or the other on those things or something in between. And so the Senate didn't send it over with any BSA increase. So the BSA increase would be zero to whatever the House puts on it. So the House is the upper limit on it. Yeah. And then a lot of the legislation that we're talking about that has been injected, you only get the House version of it. You really can't go in there and make really substantive changes to that language once you get in there you there's you can like go to free powers and then it becomes this whole thing but really like you either you, this is like a this is really a strategic move by the house republicans to kind of box in and limit kind of the bounds of what right. we're going to do this legislative session they're setting the upper um, bounds the like kind of the outer threshold of of they're saying this is the most we're willing to do let's negotiate and you can have less if you want yeah yeah and i what's going to be interesting i think is that there's so many questions and and so little process on it. I think that it'd be very difficult for the Senate to even begin to entertain this as a serious like piece of legislation. Yeah. So I don't like the the. I think that the my big concern would be if the Senate somehow you would somehow you know get enough wedge issues in there to split up the Senate bipartisan majority majority and get enough to get to get it passed and just pass it on to the governor as it currently is. The way it is sort of formulated now, I don't think that's the case. I'm kind of curious. So we the, we still have one more chance of changing it in the House. That's going to be on the House floor. It'll be sometime this coming week, probably. We don't really we haven't heard much of the schedule yet. But there's talk there about potentials for you know a BSA increase. I'm sure we're going to have amendments to to remove some of these elements. Maybe the charter school. We're probably going to get amendments to add stuff too. I mm-hmm. mean, the governor's um, version of the "Don't Say Gay" bill is still out there. The Senate has really said no way to that, but the House has been pretty gung ho on it, ish. But their version of it now is basically the "Don't say anything without written explicit written pr- approval of, of a parent ahead of time." So it would put the entire curriculum on. Uh, you'd have to get permission from your parent for like literally everything. Um, so this teaching this seems like it actually has the potential more than creating fractures in the Senate. It seems like it has potential to create fractures in the House because it's setting up a what will be a very contentious floor debate. Right, and I think that is. I mean, I think I kind of think that's part of why the rush. You know, I think that education policy in the House especially has the potential to totally blow up that majority, I think, um, hmm. especially when you get to education funding. Because, you know, last year, the the reason that the House really supported education funding wasn't really I don't think that there was like a critical mass of Republicans that did. It was that there were a handful of Republicans that supported it along with all the Democrats and independents. Right. And rather than get rolled on it, rather than see 17 of the 23 um, House majority members vote against it, but still see it pass, you know, they decided to kind of get on board with it rather than kind of see that defeat. But I think there's a lot of pushback there. It will be interesting to see, yeah, like what some of those edge case Republicans do this time around. Are there clues in the veto override votes about what that might look like? I think it's hard to say right now. 
I think it was certainly frustrating to see a lot of the moderate Republicans who did support education funding not support the veto override this time. Yeah. Is that them getting back in line or is or is that a little bit, yeah. I think. I think that there is um, Representative Andy Josephson, Anchorage Democrat, had a really good quote in the Anchorage Daily News that was basically saying something along the lines of like, look, I think they're honoring the governor's veto. They're basically he basically said they're scared of him, you know? Yeah. And I think there's there's reason to believe there's a bit of that. The governor has um, been known to be a little um, vindictive, vindictive to people he feels, especially. Yeah, yeah I so remember. Been, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you might have some first yeah, experience. I know with about this. this. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. I think there's an element of that in there. I think, though, a lot of the legislators were looking at that vote, knowing that it wasn't going to be close. And and basically kind of keeping their powder dry for a different fight, right? Because like almost on some level, like why piss off the governor now when I can piss him off when it matters? Yeah. You know? Now like, it, the other thing about all this education funding is it feels like last year was sort sort of broke the trust in that the the after a lot of hard work, the legislature passed this uh, one time increase to let, to education funding, and then the governor without really any kind of explanation or discussion, vetoed half of that funding. And it, it felt like kind of a bit of a leg sweep. And it made me wonder, like, were there some Republicans that voted for it because they knew the veto was going to come? Um, is that a strategy that they're going to use this year? Is that kind of like, okay, great, we can concede the things, and then the governor will just fix it for us later, and they can do nothing about it. Because it, it seems like, you know, if they pass whatever they want to pass, they can pass a gazillion dollars for education funding and then have the governor on the other end just slash it down and then not override with like like they've done this year. Like is that right. just the template for what happens moving forward? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said I that mean, out loud. I think it's a pretty astute observation <laughs> of how that works. Should I have right? not said that? <laughs> no, I think I think that's I think there's a, definitely an element of that. Yeah. Um uh but and that I think though is why um, a BSA increase through legislation is interesting though. Can the governor line item veto the BSA increase? No, you can't. It's oh. not a budget bill. So you would get either a veto up or down on the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be an easier to override veto, right? So two it's thirds. a two-thirds majority to override a legislative veto. But the big thing is that you know you don't get to take a haircut on it. You either. It, for Dunleavy, there Dunleavy, I think there becomes a uh, dif- more difficult like political right. Calculus he, he can't than... take it from fourteen hundred down to two hundred. Yeah, he he has it's to either, either yes, or, yes no. or no. Oh, interesting. And so, so then there's a little less like weasel room in there. I think yeah. around the messaging. I don't know. I mean, I've talked. I I would think that vetoing a BSA increase would be politically tough, but I've also well, he I does, think I've been proved wrong on that. He now. doesn't. He doesn't care. And yeah, and so. So I don't think, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that counting on the political calculus to stop him from vetoing anything is yeah. We've really, long in the past. As Alaskans, so. we've really reinforced a lot of bad behavior by not dealing with it. It's like that thing where the the bully picks on you and you don't do anything, and then the bully picks on you worse and you don't do anything, and the bully keeps... I mean, we've really given yeah. him a lot of leeway. And he has a lot of power as the governor. You know, with the legislature barely pushing back on some things it's it's tough it's nice to see that they've gotten a little stiffer in resistance and opposition that they actually did take a veto vote was heartening to me like i I didn't think that they were going to override the veto but it was good that they put their names down and said like yes we're going to stand up to this guy yeah it's going to be tough and you know i had a conversation with a, a guy last night about 
you know, who works in the legislature about this. And he said, you know, there's just not enough money. We can't, you know, like we can't fund everything. We'd love to fund education. And I was like, well, great, go get some revenue. And then it turned into a whole discussion about permanent funds and taxes and all that kind of thing. You know, we're, we're still in this financial quagmire of not having these big framework funding issues resolved. And that creates a, a very difficult situation for anything like this. Right. And I think it's I think it's such a bullshit excuse too that we don't <laughs> yeah. have money. We have a lot of money, especially for the governor's like, you know, settlements and lawsuits and anti union suits and sure and sweetheart you and know, the legislative pay raises and you know sixty five percent how much of yeah. the pay raises that legislative they leg- raises, right? Yeah. I think, you know, and that's I think what's sort of frustrating about it is yeah, it just sort of feels like an excuse. And like if you yeah, if you really cared about education funding Let's have that conversation about how to pay for it, right? Because that's not what's happening here. A lot of it isn't straightforward like that. It's not like we don't, it's not this conversation of like, well, we'd love to do it. We don't have the money. Yeah. Let's figure out that. It's, we get it framed as school districts are lying. Right. Do we really trust them? You know, the governor, you know, I think he was talking about it at the his news conference. Someone was asking about, Oh well, what about Anchorage? You know, Anchorage's got a ninety-eight million dollar shortfall in its budget. It's going to close a bunch of schools. And Dunley goes, "Do they really? Do they you know, really? Do we, do we trust them? Like, we'll we'll look into it and yeah. we'll see if they're actually telling the truth." I think there's like a really strong element here that is underlying a lot of like the Republican approach to education, which is like I think it's 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 because they know that kind of on their face their arguments aren't really palatable. Yeah. So that you so you in turn have to like villainize teachers, villainize school districts. This whole argument against like raising the BSA is because oh because the dirty administrators are going to steal all the money and put it towards administrative purposes. It's like hey, Commissioner Dina Bishop, weren't you an administrator for several years? Like isn't this alleged problem like are you the well, Are you the person in the hot dog suit asking, you know, who did this, right? Like, Yeah, and the, I mean, the other thing they talked about yesterday was this, there was a piece of this legislation that would uh, institute audits for school districts. and Four random, like, at least random audits of four school districts. And yeah. Shreggy, who has an accounting background, uh, asked a lot of really good questions about this and was like, isn't this just like, isn't this increasing the administration that you, you know, <laughs> so desperately yeah. want to cut? Like you're you're creating a more, more administrative layers for the school districts and more hoops for them to jump through and more people just like recounting the things. And, yeah. you know, and a lot of this, they, I think feel like they did like a quiet little happy dance when the Juno school district had, had the accounting error because, um, Oh, that would have, what a horrible mess up. Yeah. I and mean, so there was, I think, it, I think that is totally, it is really, really harmed the education, uh, discussion this year yeah but also like it doesn't make sense that it's harmed the education discussion it's they they, yeah, they found the thing. they found the error through their processes the processes worked to find the error there are their audits and internal checks and you know they found this yeah, error they were asking this yesterday and, would this would this change even catch it? yeah well i mean the thing is that it did it did get caught right it's, it's yeah it's not but like this the change that they're proposing wouldn't have caught it yeah so, Anyways. but it, 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 it feels like there's this opportunism being kind of bandied about with the Juno thing. But if you look around at any of the other school districts, they're all operating in with massive deficits. And mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, Juno's deficit isn't that much different than Fairbanks or Anchorage or any of these other communities. There's, you know, 50 some odd school districts that are all like kind of in the hot seat. 
Yeah, I think that to me was also another like element of this is, is Bishop was she was saying basically, oh, if you just you know if you really care, you know, it's just about it's just about prioritizing you know your the available funds and making sure it's going to where it matters. And it's like, I think so, I think Shragi or maybe it was Field said like, if it's so easy, why is not a single school district figure this out, right? No. Including the two school districts that you were overseeing, right? And I think that's just like so frustrating. I hate this line of like. Oh, we've got budget problems. We just got to figure out ways to be efficient and do more with less. So, so I think that the, and when we just got to be honest that if we're going to do less with less. Yeah, there was a guy that testified yesterday yeah. just about that. And he's like, yeah, I was in the military and our motto was more with, with less. And we did that for a lot of years. And then we ended up having a terrible operation. I thought that was a funny one. Yeah. I, was, I thought that one starting out going the other way. Yeah, me too. He's like, yeah, and our motto was more with less. And we did, you know, and then five years in, it was, everything fell apart. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's okay, good. And all my teacher friends were leaving the state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, can we just like play some like Dina Bishop clips here? Because I think it's important for people to hear like she's, so her background is as Anchorage school district and then elevated into department of education by Dunleavy. And she's really changed her tune. She was advocating for the base student allocation as a school administrator. And then now she's in the state sort of like fighting against it. And, um, you know, frames it as her position has evolved with more understanding. And but it's but the thing is that that I noticed yesterday is that she was really unable to answer a lot of questions. So I just and I feel like that really speaks for itself. So can we just do like a little quick greatest hits of of sure, yeah. Dina Bishop testifying yesterday? Thank you, um, Dr. Bishop. You've gotten some public blowback in regards to at one time as our superintendent, you, you clearly supported an increase of the BSA. I would like a little bit more detail on, on your, your viewpoint and why that has changed, please. I would just like to say, uh, when you know better, you do better. That's one of my mantras. And as an educator of 34 years and a superintendent uh, for more than 12 and an assistant superintendent for more than five, um, I've learned and I know better about our, our systems and how we support students who should be our paramount focus. Um, Lou Holtz once said, I'm a sports fan. Um, if you're not growing, you're dying. And uh, I want to grow Alaska schools and I want to share my experience with what I know uh, can support families in our state. And so, yes, I've worked through issues with the BSA. But as I said, it doesn't always land in the classroom where the value is added in public education. Now, there's a Japanese term called the gimba, which means, you know, at the front lines where the value is added classrooms and schools are where the value is added in public education and i believe by targeting funds to these areas supports students and supports our families and will create uh, more learning better student outcomes and the state that we want keeping our kids home increasing the workforce all those good things do students all students have access to charter schools if they don't have transportation or a parent that's able to transport them to school and can you talk a little bit about whether there is any local data that addresses whether or not charter schools truly are uh, serving the population equally across social, social uh, and economic uh, classes? Thank you. Sure. Through the chair uh, to Representative Shragi, I will have to um, provide data uh, to you uh, at, at another time because I don't have that in front of me. But certainly transportation uh, is a concern. So uh, I want to follow up just quickly on the oversight question. With the bill changes, would there be any local oversight remaining? Through Chair Johnson to Shragi, 
Uh, if there is a statewide authorizers, uh, I believe that the state would have the oversight. Through the chair, so that's a no, is that correct? At this point in time, um, and understanding without regulation being developed, um, I, I would say that I don't know until regulations would be developed. If uh, this bill were to pass as proposed and the charter school were to be approved without local input, uh, but approved by the Department of Education, is there any funding obligation or mandate on the local municipality or, or uh, school district with respect to that charter school? Through the chair to member Shraki, um, I don't, um, at this point in time, I wouldn't have that answer because that would probably be demonstrated through some type of regulation. Um, but at this point in time, uh, we do have, uh, I would say, um, students that reside in districts that go to other public schools in our state. And at this point in time, that is not the case. Is your understanding today that if a student was to go from a neighborhood traditional public school and go to a charter school in that same district today, that there would be a funding obligation of that local school district to fund the charter school attendance of that student? Through the chair to member Shrage, I um, believe I already said I didn't know because there aren't any, um, this isn't um, past legislation. Seems like an important question to know the answer to is the financial ramifications on school districts could be severe. Uh, my next question is just on Family Partnership Charter School because it, I think, has become such a, a flashpoint over this whole issue. Was Family Partnership Charter School in violation of either state or local laws when, with respect to the administration of education and the expenditure of funds? Through the chair to Member Shragi, uh, in my tenure at the Anchorage School District, I did not find them to be so, to have so, but I think there is a court case now that will determine your question. Okay. So. Uh, through the chair, Representative Shragi, for the record, sounds like that is still to be determined, but uh, a court case is underway and certainly some concerns over their expenditures. Uh, I'd like to also just uh, share some some thoughts. Um, I really don't care what we label schools. If a school is good for a child and they're learning, I think the state of Alaska should support it. That's what our Constitution supports, public schools for all children for their success. Dr. Bishop, do public charter schools promote any sort of religious um, academics within the, the, the charter schools? Through the chair to Representative Allard. No, that would be against the Constitution. Thank you. I just have a question, and you don't know the answer. You don't have to answer it. Do you have any idea why the leadership within the school districts or government officials hate charter schools so much, public charter schools? Um, I, I, I'm going to interject here. I think that calls for a response to – I'm going to rule that question out of order, Representative Allard. Uh, Thank you. I, I, I appreciate the, the vein, and I, it's knowledge I'd certainly like to have, but I don't think this is the platform or the forum to be dealing with at this point. So thank you. Okay, so one thing I did this week is I went to uh, a Senate uh, Judiciary Committee meeting, and I testified on a bill that was Senate Bill 17, which is a Kawasaki bill, uh, which would reinstitute campaign contribution limits, which is something that oh, yeah. I have been working on. Um, we stood up this organization called Citizens Against Money and Politics, CampaignLimits.org. We've been gathering signatures for the last couple months. 
Uh, I think we got our signature booklets in September, but we didn't really start gathering signatures until November. Um, and we've had a bunch of volunteers out running around. I think we've probably got about 12,000 signatures so far, which is, you know, not quite halfway, maybe a third. Um, mm-hmm. And we've got eight months left to do it. And so if we collect the correct number of signatures before the before September, then this becomes a ballot issue, um, not in 2024, but in the next cycle. But it's something the legislature could deal with. You know, like the thing that I said was like, we've got all these volunteers out there in the snow. When you're sitting here in this warm room, why don't you just do this? This is like your job. You're getting paid to do this. And, and, you know, like we've got like little ladies and retired judges and retired legislators out collecting signatures mm. in the, in the wind. Um, it's not, the committee seemed receptive to it. And I, th- I think it's an important issue. You know, if we have unlimited campaign contributions, then that really taints our elections. You know, we've got, it doesn't really matter what side of the aisle you are on. You can kind of pick your, your boogeyman. They're out there and there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of damage that, uh, that a millionaire or billionaire can do by just airdropping a check into injecting a check into Alaska election. And mm-hmm. it's attractive as a legislator to be like, oh, I only have to go talk to one person to pick up my check. But then you become really beholden to that person. And also on the opposite side, it's really easy for your opponent to go get that one big check. And yeah, I think an important thing to remember, too, is that the, the campaign finance limits that were struck down were passed by voter initiative, right? Yeah, 73% of Alaskan mm-hmm. voters in 2006 supported campaign contribution limits and they were overturned they were they were actually upheld by the by the state court and then overturned in a 2 to 1 decision by the um, Ninth Circuit Court, and they actually were like, "Eh, we're kind of not sure on this." They invited uh, the state to uh, yeah, appeal. appeal yeah. They said, "Please come appeal, like tell us why this is this should be there." And then the governor declined and and yep. there we go. So he yeah, didn't he go. didn't dip into his statehood defense fund to defend this yeah. this <laughs> state, unfortunately. Um, I know it's weird how like certain things matter more to them than uh, yeah others. Well, and then he immediately turned around and got a bunch of big checks for his election yeah. that year. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think it's you know Dunleavy aside, it's important for all politicians to be connected to their community and to be beholden to their community and their constituents and not be influenced by like a, it would be really easy for someone outside of Alaska to, to essentially buy up enough races to have a lot of influence over our state. Yeah. It's, it's almost like local control and kind of low, you know, localizing, uh, government and all those elements is like a really good thing, you know, whether it's campaign contributions or education policy. Yeah. Well, before Senate Bill 17, they actually did a hearing on nonviolent marijuana crimes in Alaska. And it was interesting to me because they had uh, it was Representative Stanley Wright um, Mm -hmm. was the one in in there testifying to the Senate about the bill and seemed he kind of went off script for a little bit and seemed pretty genuine and heartfelt. And it seemed like an issue that he, he cared about and kind of a um, equity and justice sort of uh, framework. Yeah. I, I think that this legislation and a lot of actually the legislation by Representative Wright, who's my representative in East Anchorage, he's a Republican, but he's actually has a lot of pretty good, um, yeah, like just uh, criminal justice sort of related bills. He's a, there's another one that's an anti payday loan bill. Um, but yeah, I think this this legislation um, has been really interesting. It's basically like formalizing uh, change by made by the Alaska court system already that limits uh, digital access to the old records. 
so you couldn't find them on court view. That that um, was one interesting piece yeah. of the testimony. So um, what is it? Mead is she the the Nancy Mead? Yeah. So she general counsel for the court. She system. came up and talked a little bit about that and kind of buried in the language she was using was the desire for the court system to limit more records, more visibility to to kind of go away from some, from quite so much public access to those records through court mm-hmm. view, which is well, I think the court system has been like really sensitive to kind of the uh, uh, lack of equity in, in some of these issues. I think they've been really active on uh, um, evictions uh, yeah. and, and housing uh, issues. They've also been really proactive on uh, basically helping people find coverage or finding representation as well as uh, the ability to like represent themselves. So there've been a lot of like interesting initiatives yeah. from the court system on that front. And so, the example they used that felt a little bit odd to me was that if you're a person who is um, being brought up on like a sexual assault charge and then the judge throws it out, then they don't put that on court view. And I can see why that like reputationally might matter. But also if you have a person with like 17 different women who have, you know, that <laughs> these cases have all been thrown out, like that's kind of a... Yeah. That's sort of a const a constellation of charges that does seem like it sh- it should be a public concern. Yeah. Well, I think that um, that, you know. that policy I believe is partly due to other legislation the legislature's already passed that yeah. removes any charges that are uh, as long as they were fully dismissed or or found not guilty, uh, then stuff gets removed there too. So yeah. But it's it's kind of a weird thing because it's like creates there's like this negative space of yeah like why why do you keep getting charged with this over and over and over again like do you <laughs> yeah it's interesting so I I actually just gave a recent uh, I got to do a, a talk at after um, the Anchorage Community Theater's production or RKP's production at the Anchorage Community Theater of the lifespan of a fact but it's this really interesting play all worth looking into it's a great great book but. Basically, one of the issues that brings up is like um, the equity of facts, right? We this we have like this idea of uh, like trustable sources, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's like sort of the over reliance in the court system or the judicial, sorry, the criminal justice system as a whole, right? Like, you know, this idea where we take like police reports like at their word, um, where there's like kind of an institutional sort of um, authority that we lend to it that disadvantages a lot of people and so you know when you look at like sexual assault cases in specific is that like a lot of them for whatever you know for many sort of institutional reasons end up getting dismissed or or whatever and so i think that's like an interesting element that's like not captured in some of this stuff it's sort of there's an assumption that if it was all dismissed and it's all fine right but it's really you know anybody who's got an experience with those systems knows that when a dismissed sexual assault case is usually far uh, more complicated than yeah than, uh, than just a simple dismissal. All right, last last order of business, uh, and then I think we call it a day. All right, uh, what about Executive Order Palooza? Um, I I do get Jesse Keel's newsletter, and uh, <laughs> he said that the governor has like issued like a dozen executive orders that would re align a whole bunch of boards and commissions and it's an abnormal number of executive orders and some of them seem like they're pretty good and some of them seem like they're pretty terrible um have you had a chance to look at any of those yet um not really there's only kind of the knee-jerk reactions i think a lot of it caught people by surprise when it was happening we haven't had hearings on it the 
big thing about it, though, is that, of course, this is a strong executive branch in Alaska. And unless the legislature pass it, both passes, you know, resolutions opposing it, then it automatically goes into effect. So, um, you know, he did this with the split of the Department of Health and Social Services from the Department the Department of Health and the Department of Family and Community Services. Yeah. And so I, I guess just kind of off the off the bat, I'm already just I'm kind of pessimistic that the legislature will do anything about it in the first place, if I'm being frank. Right. So on one on one hand, there's like the, you know, hairdressers commission and the masseuses commission, and they're trying to roll things like that into, I think, like Department of Commerce. And those kind of things maybe make sense, but also eliminate a lot of public expertise from the process. And then there's the the big one that, you know, we care about here in Southeast is the ferry system advisory board. He's sort of reforming in a way that would allow him to to appoint all of the members, which that could, seems like it could be pretty prob- problematic. Yeah, that's probably the big one, right? With all of these governor appointees, like I, Dunleavy, I can see why he wants to consolidate power and just be like, okay, we're going to sweep this underneath the Department of Commerce, which I run because I appoint the commissioner and you know, and I, and I want to appoint the entire board for this thing. But uh, he's just setting up this thing where when the next governor comes in, then you've got a whole new scramble of like, okay, clean house, here's the new board, and here's the entirely new direction. And I think about that with the, uh, you know, when you, they're talking about the state charter and the education thing we talked about, if, if you get a more progressive governor that comes in and changes out the entire education board, then what happens to those charter schools that have like built up their whole business model around being charter schools and all of a sudden you know a more progressive administration comes in it becomes this like political football instead of being run by the local school districts which have have more consistency year to year you're going to have these massive sweeping changes back and forth of like oh it's a conservative governor it's a it's a progressive governor it's a conservative governor and all these charter schools are going to be starting and stopping and getting shut down and become kind of the victims of that political battle yeah, it's almost like you, this is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Thanks. <laughs> it's yeah. a bad idea. Okay. Um, I mean, all I right. It's interesting. I mean, you look at like, okay, so you look at even the federal angle, right? It's like the same thing there where it's like, oh, it, and there's like a weird, unreal, you know, weird blindness to the reality. It's like if, Dun- or if, if the president has the right to assassinate his political rivals, then doesn't that mean the current guy has the right to assassinate? Anyways, it's just... It, it's self-serving in a way that's really short-sighted. It's, it's, it's self-serving in a way that, that uh, shows that you think that only you will be able to wield that power. Yeah. All right. Uh, hey, you've got a football game to go watch, and I <laughs> have, uh, I don't know, something to do, I'm sure. I'm going to go do some painting. Sounds good. All right. Lions. <laughs> uh, goodbye, Matt. Have fun. I'll goodbye. see you later. Yeah, have a good weekend. All right. Or rest of your weekend and have a good week. Yeah, and, and a good month to you, sir. <laughs>